Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to our amazing Spider-Man 2 special spoiler podcast. Mark Webb's web-slinging sequel has been out in the UK for ages now. Feels like years, but it's only just opened in the US, which means that millions of people will have seen it by now. And we welcome you all to this podcast, all millions of you. Joining me today are Helen O'Hara. Hello. Ali Plum. Hi there. Ollie Richards. Hey. And Chris Hewitt. Hi. Uh, over the next hour or so, we'll be discussing the ins, outs, ups and downs of TASM 2. Uh, once again, I must stress that this is a spoiler special. and We'll be discussing major plot developments in great detail. So if you haven't seen the movie yet, press pause on the podcast, go to a cinema, see the movie, come back, press play, and we'll act like you haven't been away. And if you have seen it, then listen on. First up, before we waffle on for ages, we'll hear from the filmmakers themselves. First, you're going to hear producers Avi Arad and Matt Tolmak, who were talking to Helen and myself. And then director Mark Webb, who was talking to Helen and Ali. And they were talking about the film's major, and I mean major, developments for the Spider-Verse. Enjoy. And uh, now we shall move seamlessly, mm. segue seamlessly into the spoiler section of the podcast. Uh, all bets are off from this point on. Um, we <laughs> <laughs> Depending on what you want to tell us, of course. He, he's over 18. <laughs> we give you the best one. That's right. <laughs> what else is there? That's and it. I told you what underwear I'm wearing. So. <laughs> That's it. Well, thanks for coming, James. <laughs> <laughs> it's been great. Um, we talked, uh, we were just talking there about Gwen Stacy and about the, uh, the, the, the notion of choice being very, very important in, in Amazing Spider-Man 2. She even says it at the very end of the film. This is my choice. Mm. She absolves Peter of any blame for what subsequently follows. But what follows is shocking even though you may have read the comics and you may suspect that what's coming comes. How much of a debate did you have about actually going through with it and killing Gwen and killing her in a way that made the audience we watched it with gasp? To be perfectly honest about it, this is the greatest event ever in Spider-Man's universe. In a way, it's greater than any other issue in his life Mm. because he finally found a very unique soulmate. And in this movie, as we say, Spider-Man feels he can have it all. He loves being Spider-Man. He, he's responsible. He made the right decision as far as the girl is concerned. Love wins, and it has consequences. It, it's funny because I think as soon as the name Gwen Stacy was announced for the, for the last movie, people kind of expected this at some point, maybe not in that film, but at some point, yeah. um, just because the name is so well-known to comic fans. Um, and and I think despite that everybody was really really hoping that they were wrong because they're so good together they're right. such a good a, a good screen couple right. was it always inevitable was it always something that was in the back of your mind when you thought Gwen Stacy I, I think the answer is yes you know I mean it's like if you set out to make Romeo and Juliet you know you're I think you in the back of your mind you know how that's going to end mm. Um, and, and Titanic, yeah, right. And and <laughs> I mean, and yeah. so you know, it's a it's an interesting thing. People say, you know, on the one hand, well, you have to do that because you know it is you know arguably the most beloved you know arc in the, in the comics. And at the same time, we love them together so much that you can't do that. And and but that is what makes great drama and that's what makes great tragedy and and so um you can't run from it you know you gotta you sort of you you have to embrace it and uh it's the dignity of it that's right that's right it's what it will if you set it up in a way that you know it's coming you know it may happen 
but it kind of sort of makes sense. There is something about when, when someone goes to war, someone is going to not come back. Uh, and I think the most conversations we had is how to handle, if we go there, how do we make this preserve the importance of the moment and hopefully we accomplished that. So was that one of the reasons that you mm. took MJ out of this story completely? Just to, to, to give it that importance and to give it that focus? Yeah, I mean, the the, the truth is, and we said this and it, it really was honest, um, we were so ambitious, this script, when we started this movie and there's only so much room. It was a combination of the practical realities of shooting, a script that, that was just massive and also finding what was essential and you find that you know when you start making a movie you start you sort of hit your stride and you begin to realize what everything is really about in 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 that iteration of the movie and because you know we're we're dancing around what happens at the end of this movie but because that is fundamentally what this story is about um it it became clear what we needed to focus on. Yeah. Um, I think it also had um, a very real issue about who is Peter Parker. I think, at least I would like to think, and I think the world would like to think, that Peter Parker, when he's in love with a girl who is a real partner, intellectually uh, a partner, there's a connection to her life, I don't see him becoming chummy, and I think Andrew even felt it with another girl. Yeah. Mm. So if you're not going to try and create a connection, then we are wasting film time. Mm. But I would have been personally disappointed if if I would have felt that there was some chemistry there. Mm. Uh, while I would like to believe that Peter is unique, mm. uh, I've been married for 39 years, for better or for worse. <laughs> to me, Peter Parker is the kind of a guy who is, he has a commitment to everything, yeah. to his aunt, to his life, to his girl. Uh, would have been difficult to buy into. Mm -hmm. You also know, you've seen the movie, there's no time. I mean, it's a movie, by the way, in some ways about, about that. that. There's no time. Uh, and that time is all you have. But, time is luck. But, but the idea that you're going to have time to serve as other really, it just went, you know, this movie it became very clear. It's a roller coaster from the very beginning for Peter Parker. And he's trying to balance all of these things. And there's this, this inevitable thing that's happening with Gwen as she begins to move away and all of that. So we, we didn't have time to stop. Yeah. And, and so there, here we are. Um, Shailene Woodley was cast uh, yes. as, as MJ. The, you, you guys are going straight into number three, yeah. I guess, pretty much right away. Have you made a decision yet whether she might be coming back or are you going to recast? We, we haven't. You know, I mean, we're now in, you know, just in that moment of, of breaking story um, and, and breaking story, not just on Spider-Man 3, but on Sinister 6 and on Venom mm. and Spider-Man 3. And, and now is the moment where, you know, Avi and I have been fantasizing about this for a very, very long time, but it's actually happening where we're expanding the universe we're we're kind of simultaneously building all of those stories so that they are intertwined 
and uh, there's too many spoilers in in that. To even, <laughs> it's, it's actually it, it, my head would explode. But do so you, do you who have that like becomes? a giant wall with lots of bits of string going? We have a giant wall with lots of string and and a bunch of really talented writers locked in the room. And writers and producers and directors. We have also very interesting women in the Spider-Man universe. Yeah. So sometimes what seems obvious may not happen. Well, yes, yeah. I mean, we, we met one of those women in, uh, in uh, Amazing Spider-Man 2, Felicia Hardy, yeah. at long, long last, Felicity Jones. Um, She's great. Yeah, I mean, is this an indication? Is she going to have a, a larger part to play, or are you, you planting seeds there for Black Cat? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> planting seeds, yes. Whether, she, whether it happens, we'll see. Okay. I mean, it wasn't a coincidence. I, I, I imagine not. <laughs> I imagine it wasn't. Um, but just going back very, very quickly, one last thing with, with Gwen. Uh, I imagine saying goodbye to Emma was quite tough for you guys as well. The, the manner in which it happens, the, the, the sudden noise in the, uh, in the auditorium, as we said, people gasped sure. out loud in a movie that had been very, very fun and frenetic up until that point, and then suddenly everything changed. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the impact and, the, the, I guess, the, the, the decision to design the scene in that way, design the sound in that way of her, of her demise? It was an accident. She just fell off the thing. Oh, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> we haven't wow. seen Emma Stone since no, last no, week. No, no. Yeah. Uh, you, you know what? That was an easy one. Uh, what what I think ended up probably the most discussion, the mm-hmm. most go back and forth that we went, is what did it mean to him? It's mm-hmm. all about him. And as you notice, there was, um, I think, the finale of it was really optimistic and that was the challenge mm. we went through god knows how many reiterations to how does it what does it all come up to at the end mm. i hope you were pleased yeah. with what mm. you saw it's a real challenge to get back from that just because it's such a gut punch Correct. i mean the little boy it was it was his name miles yes. I don't know yes. so uh was that the sort of the key to to, to finding a, yeah, a way back the, the, spider-man needs to go on and there's a need for him um, it, it was very important to find a symbol of that, uh, of of somebody who represents the spirit of New York and of every place, of a, a place that that not only needs him, but also you know it's a it's a little boy who has is also has taken up the sort of the spirit yeah. of Spider Man. And one of the things about Spider Man and about Peter and his relationship to the city is he learns he gives to the city, but he also gets from the city and and learns from the city and i, and I mean that's a, it's an amazing moment that's a goosebumps moment yeah. um because it's 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 the crux of what spider-man's about and and it's it's what brings you know you think about it like it's really hard to be spider-man you yeah. know he keeps getting knocked down emotionally literally physically and what are the things that buoy him how do you and this was a really important section of the movie what happens after that event that we're all talking about is 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 everything it's defining you know how do you, how does he how does he get back on the horse and and how do people deal with loss and tragedy and 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 go back to work mm. um is a really powerful thing and so this kid was was a, a critical piece of that because mm. he represented you know hope is a big theme in the movie also yeah and and he that's why the first the graduation speech uh, is kind of resonates throughout the movie. Yeah, and Spider-Man gives people hope, and and it's good for him to see that 
Even though he saves cats from her. Free. <laughs> All right. That's hope. Cats need help. You need saving. Yeah, they need help. Absolutely. That's why Avi and I are here. We're doing a special thing. <laughs> Wildlife Foundation. About, about cats. What about, what about uh, black cats? You're really on that. I'm all over this. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, going back to um, a character who appears earlier in the film and is dispatched, I think, earlier than we might be expecting, uh, Norman Osborn. Mm-hmm. Now, the first movie, he was he was mentioned uh, in dispatches. It was very much of a he was dying. We knew that much. Mm-hmm. Here we see him played by Chris Cooper. Yeah. Uh, and uh, then he dies which is very, very interesting. Can you talk about your, your decision to, to do that and your approach to Norman Osborn in this, in this universe? It was an accident. He Again. was very sick. <laughs> uh, you keep no. losing the actors, man. This is really careless. You've got to be careful when you come to, come to work on Spider-Man. Uh, well, let's, let's remember we are all comic geeks. Mm-hmm. And there's always a possibility. Yeah. Nothing is forever. <laughs> Nothing is forever. They used to say that only Be- Uncle Ben stays dead, and even he doesn't always stay no, exactly. dead. So. Exactly. And if you remember one of one of the ongoing jokes we used to have when when Matt was running the studio, that we used to bring the Goblin back. <laughs> yeah. And. Um, on the chair, on the dish, you know, right. it's the mask the voice, in the corner of the, the, mask chair, in the remember corner. That? Oh, used to be a lot of fights over it. And then in movie the two, mirror, the mirror, <laughs> we made the decision: no more this flashback of his face. Oh yeah, yeah. And we are shooting a thing in the village in a flower store, where Peter buys flowers for MJ. Mm-hmm. And for five dollars, he thought he gets all this, and the guy takes two and give it to him. <laughs> yeah. As we are shooting this, Willem Dafoe is walking home, <laughs> and it became unavoidable. Hey, what are you doing here? All right, let's put it back in a movie. Right. And and so again, if the story is interesting, yeah, and the reason for his survival mm-hmm. or lack of survival. It all ties into to Ascorp and science and actually things that are happening in, in, in our real world, experimental or mm. not, but uh, issues there. So the idea with, with a university size is to leave, you know, Easter eggs mm. for, for all of us to pick up and give us another door to go through. There's a, there's a strong hint that Norman has uh, has in, uh, imbibed of the has partaken of the serum himself mm. and has uh, with the, the nails and the color of his skin and uh, it hasn't quite worked out for him the way that it works out for his son. Fair to say. Could be some of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's also you know he's a he's a cautionary tale yeah. for his son in the movie you know and and it's part of what drives Harry is not wanting to be. Not wanting to to share the same fate mm. as his father, and the idea that there's this kind of um, death sentence hanging over you, mm. you know, and and you know the the there's there was a, a thematic link that was really important in the movie between Peter and Harry, and it's part of what connects them as characters is the they they're both sort of orphans, you know, and they connect on that level, you know, what the hell happened to us, and mm. you know, and and how were we left saddled with you know this world that we don't really understand why did well why you know why why how did we how did we get here and and that was part of the the genesis of the of the decision to do what we did with norman was to kind of 
even if just temporarily, to kind of strand Harry and to leave him with this horrible legacy that he had to sort of figure his way out of. Um, Which is, again, part of Tower of Evil, of Hoscorp. But one of the things that is, I think, worked really well in this movie is, is always to understand the hero from the villain. And here are two guys that have so much in common. Uh, forget the economics of it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. They both got dumped, basically. And one took it to a terrible place, and the other one is working through it and doesn't let it affect the way he's going to treat the world and people around him, which is, this is probably the fundamental genius of Stanley that always felt that a villain is never really a villain. It's a circumstance. And these are best friends. And then the same thing you have with Electro. Yeah. His biggest fan <coughs> is now his biggest four. Now, I had a question about Electro. When mm-hmm. uh, at Comic-Con last year, <laughs> Jamie Foxx was talking about uh, about the, the character, and it's very, very much the character that we, that we do see on screen. But he did mention, I think, a, a couple of maybe little snippets that have been sort of cut out. He was talking about his mother forgetting mm-hmm. his birthday. So were, were there a couple of little tiny bits that were cut from his yes. backstory? Yes, he had talked about that. There was, you know, again, you, you know, you start looking at a movie and it's two hours and 40 minutes long. And, I mean, the, the, we're just being honest. Yeah. You know, you have to start to make really, really hard choices. And what was... So there was there was that um, in the movie. And, and what what was critical for that character was that he be misunderstood, alone, sort of sad in that he wanted to connect, but nobody saw him or heard him he was invisible um and you get that in the movie in a way that i think is is very powerful Mm. and so yeah it was it was a a choice that that we made but that informed jamie's um you know uh interpretation of the character from the very very beginning that he really was and you see it in the, the first time you you or the second time you see him in the movie um he's just a man alone yeah it, the, the the Times Square scene is desperately sad. Yeah, you yeah. just want someone to give him a hug. It's, that's right. It's, I mean, you don't want anyone to hit to hit him at all. That's right. Yeah. And that's and, exactly what Peter is trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. Let's walk away from this madness. Yeah. But it didn't work, and it's the injustice of it mm. for Peter. He really didn't do anything to hurt mm. Electro. Yeah. But it's a perception that turned him into such a terrible enemy. Yeah. One of the things that this movie does uh, with Electro is uh, amp up his powers. I mean, I always, whenever I was reading this comic as a kid, you would always assume that Electro, he can control electricity, he has powers of electricity, he should be more powerful than he is. He shouldn't be just a, a well, not a second-tier villain, but someone who Spider-Man can mm. beat fairly easily. Yeah. Um, in this one, he's almost a god. Yeah. Uh, can you talk about that decision to, to really ramp it up and, and make it so difficult for, for Spidey to beat him? It was... Jamie, Jamie likes being God, and, uh, and <laughs> he is a God. Uh, you <laughs> know what? No it, it's we we when we look at a villain, <clears throat> we look at how does it connect to the journal story. That's one. Two, it's a movie, so you want to have something that is visually kind of mind-boggling, mm. yet believable. Yeah, and and it is believable, and it can happen. And, you know, when we see people hit by an eel or people hit by lightning, some survive, some don't. The ones that survive actually contain a very high level of electricity. So 
it, it just a human cannot fight this power you know I cannot no one there can stop a lightning mm. so the challenge became that it's not physical it's everything mm. every tool known to Peter from science from agility from speed uh, and and by the way Max is smart yeah so it it's really the ultimate fight and it looks spectacular yeah I mean I was gonna say that the the visual of it was also something we were very drawn to you know and, and I think you know it's a long way from the lizard of the last movie mm. you know in terms of what what his capabilities are and, and what that looks like and, and I think we, we wanted to really kind of blow it out um, and uh, so for all those reasons it seemed and we also, in the basement of Oscorp, we, we see a, a familiar set of forearms. We see a set of wings. Uh, and we see the this this sort of cloaked figure, this, mm-hmm. you know, behatted figure, um, who is the gentleman, if mm-hmm. this is correct. That's how he's listed in the credits. Can we expect to see more of him, perhaps, in the future? Just try and keep him away. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. I mean, yeah, the gentleman actually can be a very interesting line of communication. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the future, yeah, that's a, that's the messenger. That's us know. sort of telling you where we're headed. Yeah, um, and and it's also integral in the story in this movie. Yeah, you know, um, in terms of what 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 Peter's up against, um, and you know, this is the this is the first chapter of the. Um, I was going to use a bad word, but the uh, <laughs> the storm uh, that's coming. Right, and the gentleman is you know sort of. Uh, coordinating that right. is, is there hope though because Harry has somewhat regressed to Harry by the end of the film is there hope for Peter and Harry or is there a, uh, is there friendship forever torn apart I think that's a you know that's a wonderful question that's the heart of what's I mean think about it I mean what he's done and at the same time you know Peter Parker is Peter Parker so how do you I think that's a it is a great question um, that there's and, not an answer believe for. it or not, you know, the great Alvin Sargent yeah. had uh, the greatest writer of our time. He used to say to us, I don't know the answer to it. You have to ask the character. <laughs> so as the process continues, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we have Harry now, and we have Harry as a very complicated, uh, full of vengeance kind of a guy. Mm. But at the same time, the only guy who came to see him after his father was pronounced dead was his his friend. Mm. So let's believe that, again, what makes this this marvel unique is humanity somewhere comes to fruition. And, and we'll deal with it. It's a wonderful question because it's... it. I don't think we are dealing with it today. Mm. No, right? I mean... It's not something we are talking about it today, but it's a wonderful opportunity. Yeah, it's, it hangs over the whole franchise now. Mm, absolutely. And, uh, and one last thing before you uh, have to let you guys go. Uh, Matt, you mentioned that you're working mm. on Sinister Six, Venom, Amazing Spider-Man 3. Yeah. You're trying to break the stories for those all yes. at the same time. You didn't mention Amazing Spider-Man 4, which is... Um, Mark said he's not coming back for that one. He's he's ending the three. Yeah. Andrew has said he's not sure about four. So are you thinking about the next three as a, as a group? Are you not thinking about four, even though it's been dated for 2018 at this point in time? 
thinking about it, but you know, it, it, we're I mean, we're going to keep making Spider-Man movies. So yes, after after we make Sinister Six, Venom, and Spider-Man Three, there will be a Spider-Man Four. Um, the only reason I'm laughing is because I'm just thinking about what, what, that, <laughs> what that entails. As, but, as yes. you know, you saw the press releases. Yeah. Some of the movies that we are going into actually have director commitments. Yes, okay. absolutely. Those three. Uh, between Alex and Drew. Uh, and Drew. Mm. Um, what, what will happen with other movies? Uh, it, it will be, listen, Mark, very much like, like Seb, went through his trilogy. Um, I think this movie is going to make Mark very excited mm -hmm. because people are reacting appropriately. Um, it's up to him, you know, it's nice, nice choices. But I think he'll want them. I agree with him. It's one more. And then Tabula Rasa because we have so many yeah, chemicals yeah, yeah. coming. Yeah. Uh, and they all those movies live in the Spider-Man universe. Yeah. So y that's the y y the the sort of the rethink on it is, it's not just Spider-Man three, Spider-Man four, Spider-Man five. It's Sinister Six, Venom, Spider-Man three. There and so it's going to be degrees of involvement from yeah. different characters in each of them. Is that the order in which they're going, or how, how do you see it happening? Not clear yet exactly which is going to come out when. Okay. Uh, but we're we're moving full, you know, all guns all blazing, literally all at once. And and, and the one last thing I wanted to ask yeah. is because people do ask this every time uh, we we did it. Obviously, Drew was a confirmed as the director of Sinister Six this yes. week, and a lot of people were asking this: yeah. Can a Spider-Man movie work without Spider-Man, or do you need Andrew mm -hmm. to be Spider-Man? Can you have a CG Spider-Man, for example, show up now and again in Sinister Six or Venom, and not necessarily have Andrew in the suit, or will Spider-Man not be a presence in those movies? Well, um, I think you do. My my own opinion, I think that Spider-Man will always be there, uh, maybe in concept, in spirit, as a motivating power or something to go back to. Uh, but physically, uh, I think you can have a hell of a fight among. The sinisters about Spider-Man without ever looking at him. <laughs> uh, but you can also let the story dictate. Okay. I, w I would say this is way too early for the next yeah. spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Thank you. No worries. Yeah. Gents, we'll see you in two years for another one. For sure. Thank yeah. You so right much. in this room, this Matt. Okay. Great. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks, you. guys. Yeah, <laughs> we should we should probably break open the secret vault underneath a subway station in New York that is the spoiler <laughs> department. And beginning on that, I want to talk about Roosevelt Station. Uh -huh. Like, was that idea always in the script? I love like public transport. Hello, I'm uh -huh. a nerd. And the idea of there being a secret underground. I love public transport. I love it. <laughs> You're a public transport. Welcome to the UK. You'll love it. Yes. Yeah. No, right, I'm great. a big tube fan. Um, but yeah, was that always in the script, or would that come to someone? Um. That was not always in the... I mean, the idea of Roosevelt was in the script in, fun, in some sort of secret station, which had come... Um, I think Alex uh, had come up with the idea. And then um, we were trying to think about how to make that more impactful cinematically. Mm -hmm. And Mark Freeberg and I were talking about the uh, uh, um, how to let that... How to play that out. And we came up with this idea of, of the... Uh, 
the the train sort of emerging in this elevator in that very specific way there is something it's like there's an indiana jones quality to it yeah. right you know and and that thing that that secret passageway that hidden uh that hidden secret door that there's something about that that it sort of touches on the subconscious, I think, in a way like that, that you just, it's always exciting. Like I always like, and whenever there's a treasure map in a movie <laughs> or a mystery like that, I'm just like, I'm in, I'm in. <laughs> and we, we, uh, maybe I forced that into the movie just because I love that kind of thing. <laughs> but it's, but it's useful as well. And, and he gets there mm-hmm. and he finds that the computers are still running, which yeah. that's some high quality hardware. Right well, now. he hit the, yeah, the, 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 what you didn't see is that the, 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 uh, car was you know hit the third rail which is still of course uh, active and so they that's where it took up you know you thought this through yeah we actually like had a to... shot literally of the thing coming down on the third rail i was like oh people will figure it out <laughs> what easter eggs would you recommend people to look out for when they rewatch it the well the clock tower uh look at the time at the end of the movie near the end of the movie there's an action sequence at the clock tower at the end of the clock tower the the time that it's pointing to is a significant number. It's just an acknowledgement of something, uh, which you can take a look at. That's uh huh. Huh. Ooh, I didn't spot that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, I'll be interested to see if people pick up on that. Maybe they will now. We uh, we thought there was something about the bridge, didn't we? Yeah. So w- well, mm. um, this this is part of obviously the big spoiler uh-huh. discussion, uh, right. which is Gwen Stacy. Now, as soon I'll be honest, as soon as in the first film uh-huh. you cast Emma Stone. As Gwen Stacy, I was like, "Uh oh," um, and and especially when she, why did why you say "uh oh"? I said "uh oh" because Gwen. I know the comics, yeah, and right. any time I hear oh, Gwen when Stacy, you heard Gwen I Stacy, think, you're like, I think yeah, death against yeah. Gwen Stacy. And then on this one, when they, you know, they have obviously their ups and downs throughout the film, they finally mm-hmm. kind of recommit to each other. Yeah. On top of a bridge on the East River. Yeah. And I was a bit like, "Uh oh," <laughs> you know, it's yeah, yeah. Um, but then they leave. But then they leave. Yeah. So you. Then did, they make it out. Yeah. The, Absolutely intentional. Right. We knew what Gwen's fate was, mm-hmm. and we built the movie around that. And there was the theme that um, that was working on uh, that we were working on underneath that. Um, and it was tricky because there's a there is an iconic version of her death, uh, which we wanted to um, we wanted to honor the the event, but we wanted to make it new and interesting for the audience and we didn't want people to we, so there was a there was a tease there they're like oh well you know what's coming they're like it's such a great moment and i love you and then you just everybody who's read the comics is like oh no <laughs> oh no like this cannot and then then they get away you're like oh they chickened out you know and and but but that's you know when i was talking with uh alex the writer at the very beginning we were talking about um this is what we have to do. Mm. We have to build this because I think it was a really important moment in the comics and it was something that, that even in the first movie that I, I knew I wanted to explore. Um, but we're like, well, what is the meaning of it? You know, why is it significant? Why is it important to do? And I think it embodies a theme which uh, we built the movie on, which is it's about the nature of time and, and valuing the time you have with the ones you love because you don't know what's going to happen. And particularly with, you know, a story like this, things actions have to have consequences you know choices involve consequences and loss often and that's a very real very true thing but time was that thing it was like these these people have a limited amount of time together and it's it's terrifying but it's very true so that's why we set that uh sequence in a clock tower and i was like well let's put that the the that final thing instead of putting it on a bridge let's do it in a clock tower and then when um you know that 
the final moment, like, you know, the web is slung between the cogs of the wheel that are, you know, that literally he's trying to stop time. He's trying to stop time and he can't. And that's where that came from. And the first shot of the movie is a, a shot of a inside of a watch, mm. you know, a ticking clock. And it's, it's something the word time comes again and again, um, even with Richard Parker, with Richard Parker's message at the beginning of the film. Um, I wish, wish I had more time. And that was, that's sort of this impulse that we all have. Harry Osborne just wants more time. And, you know, then that, so this is a theme that comes up again and again. And that's what was, that's how at least I viewed the meaning of her demise. And then Peter has to survive that. Mm. I'm fascinated by that. Like there is this, this, you know, first love, which is innocent and pure and, and whole, where you can give yourself in a way that you probably can't give yourself any time in your life, any other time in your life, there is usually an end to that, and it's tragic. But you you can choose to be um, that can swallow you, or you can grow from it. Mm-hmm. You know, and and this was about finding meaning and loss, and 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 finding a way to evolve yeah. out of uh, through pain. Hence, yeah. I guess, partly her speech, which also ties into the time thing, what to do with yeah, the time that's yeah, given exactly. to you. Exactly. Kind of time is luck. Did, did, did you or the writers spend a lot of time, you know, watching or reading great kind of commencement speeches? Uh, <laughs> well, there was a, there, there is a, there's the Steve Jobs commencement okay. speech. You know, Steve had, Steve Jobs, Steve, like I know him, <laughs> uh, was talking about the nature of death and, and how it's, it's a gift mm. in a way. And, you know, he knew what was on the table for him in some way and it gave his life a, an urgency but also a purpose mm. and i think the idea was quite beautiful and moving to all of us emma on her phone has a little quote from the steve Jobs speech on the back taped on the back of her phone and she didn't really uh even know that that's what we used as a model for that speech oh, really yeah. oh wow yeah. That's a character echoing uh, yeah. actor. Then that's kind of yeah. cool. I, I have a suggestion. It's a little bit off, mm. yeah, off base. I mean, um, Shailene Woodley was cast as MJ, mm. and uh, you know, now I guess with Divergent being yes. the success that it yeah. is, who knows if she'll be free and when she'll be free. Yeah. Um, but here's my suggestion: cast Emma Stone as MJ with her red hair. We know she looks great with red hair. Don't think we haven't thought of that. And I mean, you <laughs> don't know, think that is absolutely what we've thought of, about. There could yeah. be a clone story, there could be a lost twin story. You've got all sorts of backstory then you could explain why they look a bit alike. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Yes. She's yeah, she's so special and extraordinary and what they have on screen together is is kind of I mean, there's times when I'm like we were shooting this thing in Union Square. Um and, you know, it's all scripted and we rehearse it and we talk about the feelings underneath it. And then, like, you, you just sit back and and when they're around, I just step away and watch them unfold in ways that is just so pleasing and so funny. And they're always improvising with each other. And there's a playfulness that you're like, I, I sometimes get misty because I'm like, wouldn't that be great if my life was like that, you know? And and it's it's a really it's a magical thing, and they're really really brilliant actors, and I think that's what makes the 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 story and the eventuality of the story impactful and important, and and you know it 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 gave us, um, you know, we all like took a sort of deep breath, and we're like, this is what we have to do, and we knew it from the beginning, and we knew it um, because that's it, it's what I think you know it ushered in a new era of comic books mm-hmm. when that happened, um, uh, you know people realized that there were stakes mm-hmm. and you it made you pay attention it makes you lean forward and and um 
and be you know weary when when there's bad guys around bad things happen yeah and 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 that was uh you know it's it's a really interesting kind of uh balancing act for spider-man because you know he is probably maybe more than any other superhero he's kids love him yeah i mean yeah. maybe superman or yeah. batman on the same level yeah. but, but kids really really love spider-man and he feels a bit more like a kid than yeah he well he is a kid yeah yeah, yeah definitely um, but at the same time he does have these really big stakes and you know and he does have tragedy in his life and uh-huh. and more than i think any other hero at all and, and i don't mm. think it's even close in this case he deals with real world problems you yeah. know money well there's family. the peter parker part of it which is like exactly. he's not an alien he's not a billionaire he's this middle middle class kid from queens who's got all, all the same problems that we all do mm. and you know in terms of kids it's a really important thing and, and it's something that you know at the beginning of the movie in particular we try to embrace a frankly a more broad uh, version of the characterizations of these of these people and like it's kind of funny and kind of goofy and a little bit silly because that's the spider-man that you you start off understanding and the animated series was really good at that and um we really wanted to we thought a lot about kids because that's who we were when we started to engage with spider-man and obviously has to service a more sophisticated emotional um architecture and and problems that we all deal with but it was something that we really were protective of all the way through. And Andrew uh, and I had a lot of conversations and it was Andrew was particularly was like, we got to remember those kids and that, that Jorge, which is a character at the end of the, the, the movie, the little kid who puts on the Spider-Man outfit, um, you know, that is who we're making the movie for in some mm. way. And not, it, it, it's that kid or that kid that's inside of ourselves, yeah. you know, which is a cheesy thing to say, but it's totally true. I did want to ask about him as well. Mm. Um, he's adorable, Jorge. and I think yeah. you, you've you had such a job at the end of that movie after you know punching us all collectively quite hard in the gut mm. um, to then leave on any kind of note of hope. Mm-hmm. And and it turns out what you need is essentially a seven year old. Yeah, who believes? Yeah, yeah. I mean that was a uh, it was a tricky thing. I mean we all. I mean it's it's hard too because you know we spent uh, years with. I mean there's the story and then there's like you know all of us who have spent four years together making these movies and like we're saying goodbye to Emma and that's fucking hard, you know? And so, um, but that's that kid, you know? And like he, he, when you go around the country or the world and you see there is these kids that they have some primal, very, very, well, uh, powerful emotional connection to Spider-Man. They just, they want to be him and they feel like they are him. And they, they, it really is. It's incredibly powerful. And, and, uh, and we wanted to embody that. You know, we wanted to find a voice for that. And that's what inspires, you know, Peter Parker to get back on the in the suit. But also in that last bit, you've got I've got someone who you only see really in the credits who they are, but mm-hmm. basically my question is, what can you tell us about the gentleman? The gentleman. Well, he's a kind of an obscure character from some of the latter comics. And it's something that we I, I, we when we we do a deep dive through all the comic books. Uh, whether it's the Amazing Spider-Man or there's even like these novels that are these novelizations of the Sinister Six uh, story and and other, for the Ultimates there's the whole Tom McFarlane stuff and like um, all these great uh, storylines but that character seems so interesting and because we were thinking about the Sinister Six and how to unfold that the gentleman was a guy who's sort of a, if you look at the comics he's he's someone who sort of brings everybody together and he's this billionaire uh fancy kind of uh very 
he's actually really old in some of the comics, like really old in his nineties, I believe, but very sharp. And I thought he was such a mysterious, interesting character that I wanted to explore that. And he seemed, he, he was, we had a precedent for him, Mm -hmm. but he was obscure enough that not everybody would know how he was. So that was, um, that's where that he's at the very end of the first film as well. Yes. He walks into the lizard's room and I remember thinking, is that, that can't be Norman, could it? I mean, well, that's what everybody thought. Yeah. Which was great, because you were like, oh, yeah. <laughs> nice. Gotcha. Some people thought he was Electra. Some people thought he was Norman. Um, he was neither, of course. Yeah. I've... Did you know who the gentleman was? No idea. Yeah. Not many people do, unless you're like, I brought it up to like a blogger one time. I was like, pay attention to the gentleman. He's like, and he knew, but he was like, that's like, that's deep. But I was like, I'm proud. Because uh, he actually is relatively recent in the canon. But... Mm. I think I've come across him in one book, and that's all. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, obviously, this this film is is setting some groundwork for the Sinister Six. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's also setting groundwork for Venom. I didn't spot anything in particular. There is one very like if you pay attention, you'd have to freeze frame something. Mm-hmm. Really, there is, a, there is a mention of I think of I think it's either the symbiote or of Venom in particular. Okay, but. Uh, we're kind of on a wall type thing. Kind of. Okay. Yeah. I'll take that. Yeah. <laughs> so we were talking to Avi and, and Matt Tolmack mm-hmm. this morning, and, and uh, they, uh, if they are clear, they weren't admitting what order these films will come out mm. in terms of Sinister Six, Venom, mm. and Amazing Spider-Man 3. Now, yeah. is that something that literally involves all of you around a conference table yeah. figuring everything out? Yeah. I mean, it's, it is. there's a lot of conversations that go in with that to try to figure out the most efficient and most dramatic way of revealing the story and it's i think what we're trying to do is is kind of different and a little bit tricky so um fortunately there's a lot of incredibly smart super fanatic people around that table and it's it's a fun room to be in but you got to be on your game you know what i mean like drew is fantastic alex is amazing you know bob jeff i mean it's it's a uh, Ed, I mean, there's just really great people there. Yeah, you know, there were a lot of trailers for this film, and I was wondering, having seen so much, and obviously I'm a film journalist, so I do see a lot of this stuff yeah. more than most people would. But I felt there were certain scenes that weren't in the film mm. that we did see in trailers. How long was your first cut of this film? The there was certain parts of scenes that we cut out. There was like a shot of him looking over the city, which we cut out. We sort of cut out at the last moment because we felt like it was getting to a little bit too long. And and I just it's one of those things like there's just a pace thing. Uh, but the first, I mean, I mean, you know, the first assembly of this is you know is is always the case with with these movies. It was, I don't remember. It was probably around three hours, three. Mm. You know, but that's like it's not really even a movie at that point. Sure, yeah. it's kind of like a, an assembly of things, and you're just finding the shape of it. Mm. You know? what, what was the hardest thing to get rid of? The hardest thing to get rid of was um, aside from Shailene Woodley. <laughs> yeah, well, that was hard. I mean, just because it's like you know you hadn't focused on that story, and she's so brilliant and wonderful, and that that kind of talent is really quite rare. That's actually probably a really good example of what was difficult. And there were a couple of little uh, lines in the trailer uh, with Harry. I think he was saying some. Uh, there was a line about we have plans for you, Peter Parker, and then Harry revealed that he'd been followed for life, and that kind of conspiracy element, yeah. I guess, sort of. Oh right, maybe we seemed. Have, well, we have plans for you, Peter Parker. Was uh, I think the marketing people, you know, used they they actually had Chris do that. Do that. Yeah, you know <laughs> what I mean. But there was like they, they, there was a there is a sort of conspiracy element which we kept in about like you know the people from Oscorp spying on Harry. 
And then he's sort of taken on that mantle at the end of the film. In okay. a way. Yeah. The other quick thing I, I remember Jamie Foxx talking about at Comic-Con was mm-hmm. uh, Electra's mum, yeah. I think, was in it. Yeah, we, there is a scene that was uh, that was cool, but it, about with, with Electra's mom, uh, which will probably be in the on the Blu-ray, where Ma- well, Max is like, you know, his mom is just laying into him about, you know, not even remembering his birthday. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, it was, you know, it was really sad. It was really a sad, tragic scene. You felt so bad for Max. and But it was one of those things. It was just like you're trying to hone the film down and make it, you know, as efficient as you can. And, and you know, it's it's. I don't like movies to be long. Like, I have, I'm sort of an impatient uh, guy but there's also you also want to indulge in character and it's just about picking those those things out and that's mm. it's tricky but mm. that was one of those things that went at the last minute you still feel sorry for him my god yeah yeah <laughs> you might think i'm overanalyzing mm-hmm. and it's because i am but <laughs> is there any chance that the color of the little lightning bolts and the icing on the top of the cake of course that so, was a reference to the original good because uh, you whipped out i went electro brilliant really good that was a good eye man yeah my other one is how important is the number thirty nine to you? Um, the number thirty nine because he says it's it's like fuse thirty nine or something oh, goes fuse, off fuse circuit thirty nine circuit thirty nine and then um, the yeah. the cops on their cuffs are all thirty nine. I was wondering. Oh wow! Is that a prop master thing who likes that number? And no, what, well the prop uh, uh, Jamie uh, just improvised that. Oh, right, because um, he was like, "What actors like actors will like sort of walk through the scene? They'll, they'll, they'll specificity is big for actors. Sure. They want to create something that feels real. So he's like, he, he wanted to create a, a sense of familiarity with the environment around him. So he just sort of like, circuit thirty nine. God, you know, like he's been up there a million times before, <laughs> and he knows this is a pain. And but that's what was it, he improvised that. That's interesting. <laughs> See, I'm that kind of guy. No, it's good. It's good. Well, that's what's great about these things. You find you can people search for meaning, and and it's a, and we all know that, and we are exactly, by the way, the same way. Talk about Electro's power as well. He's 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 a bit more powerful than he than he often has been in the comics. Yeah. Um. Was that just to make him a more kind of a credible threat? Because having made him so sympathetic, you you really have to make him a threat to lose that sympathy a little bit. Yeah, he has to be incredibly seditious and and also maniacal on that mm-hmm. that that psychotic part of his character. I think the seed of his villainy is there from the very beginning. You know, he's just he's just crazy we actually the, the it was a rupert pupkin from uh king of comedy that scorsese mm-hmm. movie that was sort of our basis for the character and uh but the in terms of his traveling around i was just trying to think of the most cinematic way for this character to to exist in that world and and we spent a lot of time developing the the bolts that he was shooting we just didn't want him to like you know we didn't want it to be like the emperor in in return of the jedi we wanted it to have some sense of scope and a, an identity that was unique to mm-hmm. electro and getting his movement protocol and his the way he walked and the way he uh disappeared and evaporated took a lot of r&d but um it was all about like part of it was about exploiting the 3d and making that feel giving him a sense of volume and space that was interesting and i think he actually he, he works great in 3D, Electra mm. does. But yeah, that was about, you know, you want to create a villain that's like powerful, but also cinematic. Yeah. And and same kind of thing, I guess, with, with Harry. I mean, is mm. no, he's, not, he's actually not named. Is it Green Goblin or Hobgoblin? Well, you know, do you have to really, do you really have to identify it specifically? <laughs> I mean, anyway. Mr. Goblin. Any, yeah, Mr. Goblin. Exactly. Uh, I mean, it, it was a trick. It was, it was part of the whole... Um, 
trying to play the audience a little bit of the yeah. fan of the comics because you don't you know when Norman Osborn you know dies at the beginning of the movie and you wanted to sort of dodge and and twist around um, what people's expectations were um, in terms of uh, um, you know creating that it was well I wanted to you know they they share a disease Norman and Harry this retroviral hyperplasia a, a degenerative disease and and we wanted to have that as you know give it a sort of biological quality to uh to that character and and um i mean that's where that that the design of that creature mm. came in but you and he didn't have the mask which i thought i think was great because obviously there was a lot of criticism in the first spider-man yeah back when Raimi did it right exactly you, you, you can't see him you can't see yeah you can't ex- yeah. see that expression and and that's so it's so important in terms of um creating an emotional mm. undercurrent uh, with you know particularly with spider-man and yeah and harry and you snuck in a pumpkin bomb as well. Yeah, a little closer with the pumpkin bomb. Yeah, <laughs> you just yeah. you could just feel everyone in the audience go. <gasps> yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> we know they're bad. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you think? I mean, is is uh, is Harry gone? I mean, is it is there is there any way back for him and Peter? Because well, let me tell you something about like Spider Man in general. Um, one of his you know assets. He's a human. There's he's always trying to appeal to the humanity. You know, he's trying to find the better parts of our nature. And, you know, right now I think that's incredibly difficult for him, given what's happened in the movie. But that's the challenge. And that's what you've got to make things difficult for Peter in interesting ways. And, and really, you know, you know, Harry's was his best friend. And they were bound by history and by, you know, the loss of their fathers and uh, and now he's become his really his greatest enemy and will he ever be able to forgive or to find something human in him i don't know i don't know but that certainly that certainly would be in line with what we know of spider-man what we know of peter parker is that he's not he he he's trying to find the humanity mm-hmm. where there is often very little yeah i wonder how difficult it was to do that montage sequence after what's happened with with the uh, you know, to to Peter Parker was yeah. was it difficult to find to edit that right? Which which montage with the grave the... with the graves? Oh yeah. Well, um, you know, it was like it was just about communicating the depth of his despair. You know what I mean? The time and how still he was, and it was a kind of a. It was we looked at it like a panels of a comic book, really. Hmm. You know what I mean? And still the tableaus to communicate a, an emotion. I mean, and, and that was a very comic booky thing. I actually originally when I conceived of it. I wanted to shoot, um, like, I shot the angles as if it were the face of a clock, and he was at the center of a clock, and it was, like, sort of moving around. And then when I got into the edit, I sort of shifted around a little bit, but there was a progression uh, that it would felt. It was also the first time in the movie where the, the camera really stopped. You know what I mean? There was movement. The camera was always moving all the way around, and it was going, going crazy, and this is a moment where it was totally still, and the music was quiet, because you just were trying to be inside of his head and be... Uh, you know, just paralyzed, which is what Peter was. That mm. was where that came from. Wow, that's a real donor to finish on. Yeah, thanks. That was yeah, all, all right. my fault. Yeah. So. Sorry. Yuck, yuck, yuck. <laughs> now here we are. Uh, Abhi Arat, Matt Tomac, Mark Webb have answered a lot of burning questions, but we still got a lot to discuss. And in fact, you 
our listeners have had a lot to discuss as well. You've been sending in questions to us over the last week or so uh, via email because we didn't want spoilers getting out on Twitter. So uh, let's take your questions one at a time and we'll use these as jumping off points to discuss things. Here's a question from Jason Rose uh, from Watford. Hello, Jason Rose from Watford, who tackles uh, a couple of the big questions. In fact, the big question of the film, I guess. Uh, he says, hi, guys. I always love your spoiler casts. Oh, thanks, Jason. I have two questions from the Totes Amaze Spidey 2 film. Um... After your criticism of Captain America 2 and your podcast about characters not staying dead in Marvel films, i.e. Nick Fury and every character in a Marvel movie, were you pleased... I added that bit. Were you pleased that Gwen Stacy got bumped off at the end? Of course, this is what happens in Amazing Spider-Man 2. Gwen Stacy, as per comic book legend... Indeed. Uh, ...carks it at the end of Amazing Spider-Man 2 in a shocking fashion. Um, what do we think about this? Well, not... I mean, a little bit shocking, I guess. I think... I meant the, the manner of it was shocking. Sure, you, sure. Well, we all saw it at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite a fun movie, quite loud and kinetic and poppy. And then, oh, someone's spine has been broken and uh, we've heard the snap. And I didn't expect that. And, oh, I'm quite depressed now. <laughs> I would like to go and have a moment alone. I thought she hit the back of her head, actually. I think she hit the no, back of her the, head. Uh, I think she, no, she hits the back of her no, head. No, she, uh, she stops the, the, the things. It's like, but exactly what happens in the comic books. Her spine breaks. She falls. The the thing stops she's above the ground and the, the, the force of the web breaks her spine but if her spine her. broke she would have been fine because I've seen the Dark Knight Rises <laughs> <laughs> yeah you can break it like two or three times can we just like on your point there Chris of like what it starts as and what it ends up being like the yeah. beginning of the film is the most like kind of Paul Giamatti overacting cartoon explaining what plutonium is in the back of a van this is plutonium if you drop it it will be bad and then it's webhead and you know Paul just screaming first name terms screaming this Russian vernacular and as you say fast forward two hours mm. and you, you get to this yeah spine snapping but Spider-Man. that's what's good isn't it Maybe I just assumed immediately that they were going to kill her, and and I assumed that they were going to do it in a similarish way to the comics. And they actually tease it. I mean, we discussed this with Mark Webb, but they tease it before they do it. They have them on the bridge where it happens in the comic, mm. and then they you know do it in a in a clock tower because that fits with with this film's themes. But the moment you call somebody Gwen Stacy, you might as call her you know Pete McDederson. It just <laughs> I, I just kind of saw that was going to happen. Pete McDederson. Okay, maybe like a girl name. Maybe Why are you like... wearing a red shirt, Gwen? <laughs> <laughs> she was. She had a red shirt on through two films, and this is the great tragedy because they did this great thing of casting these two people who have this insane chemistry. Those two should get together. You know what? You might be on something. I think there. they should. But uh, with the knowledge that it was always going to be, you know, pretty temporary, and and I think I honestly I felt that there was real regret in Mark Webb's. Uh, you know, discussion about wanting to cast Emma Stone as MJ as well in some way. You know, if he could make that work, if there was any way to make that work, you know he would do it. Or J. Jonah Jameson. They she could do it. They haven't cast J. Jonah Jameson yet. It's like, just stick a tash on her. She'll be fine. She'll be great. Isn't it, isn't it kind of unfair, though, to criticise the film for killing off the character who famously dies? You know, no, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily criticising them for that. I'm just saying, lamenting, you know. Lamenting, I guess. Lamenting. Yeah, I think I, I think it, it isn't a spoiler to anyone who has an even my very basic knowledge yeah. of these comics. I, that's that's all I feel. It. For example, Ollie, you're you were on set of this movie. Yeah. Um, but are you well first in in Spider Man Lord? You... Did you know, for example, Gwen Stacy died? Uh, you... I did. Yeah. Uh, yes, because I like to do some research before I go. And, uh, <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> that beats a lot of people. <laughs> when I, I'll never forget going on set of Iron Man, and we were driving on to the uh, the lot, and a Russian journalist who shall remain nameless turned to me and went so tell me about this Iron Man it's like <laughs> literally we're about to go on set what are you doing anyway sorry 
Uh, yeah, I I knew. I mean, I don't. Uh, I think even knowing it was it was coming doesn't, in a sense, spoil it. Because I thought what worked really nicely is this, uh, what is usually done in superhero movies is with the relationships they make them. Uh, with, sorry, the romantic relationships they make them quite tragic. They keep building up to tragedy. It's always oh something bad's going to happen. Something bad's going to happen. Whereas this was all they were. They seemed so happy together. You loved seeing them together, which means that when that death happened, which I thought was brilliantly done, I thought mm. that whole sequence was superb. It really hit. Even as someone who I have no investment in the comics whatsoever, if they changed how the comics worked, it would have made no difference to me. But as a film, because I'd grown to like that couple so much over two movies. When they killed her, in the way that they killed her, and uh, and then he reacted the way he did, and I thought he was superb in that scene. Mm. I thought he was superb throughout the whole film. It really, it really, really worked for me. So I, I don't, I didn't find the change in tone from happy go lucky, aren't we having a nice time, mm. to absolute tragedy, a bad thing. I thought oh, it wasn't that was a bad a thing, thing either. I'm saying, well, I'm saying uh, for me, it was actually a great moment in the film. Uh, it's very rare that you get a movie like this of this of this size, of this nature, of this budget, that suddenly shocks you. Yeah. Uh, in a way, and uh, and within the confines of a PG thirteen slash twelve A rating as well. Yeah, but the noise, uh, you know, it's it's you don't see stuff like that in horror films mm. sometimes, and it was quite it was quite uh, quite shocking. I find it interesting that you were so effusive in your praise about how well done that was. You seem to be the thing that niggled with me is that when it comes down to Green Goblin and Spider Man fighting in the gears mm-hmm. of this clock, it seemed to be just apart from one stray uh, pumpkin bomb just two people just kind of choking each other and kind of grasping each other, which I didn't feel that inventive. And in addition to that, I found the outreaching arm shape of the web quite odd. That that kind of jarred with me. I found it quite strange and kind of drew me out of the experience. The web suddenly grew digits and was reaching for her. I know this poetic license, but I found it quite odd. Okay. Uh, I found the, the what I... When I say I thought the sequence worked really well, I meant in their sense. Yeah, okay, it wasn't an amazing fight scene if you separated that from it. But my thing with both of the new Spider-Man movies has been I like Gwen and Peter. Mm. As long as that works, I'm I'm in. I I mean, I, I, I enjoyed the rest of it, but once I thought they nailed everything that they've done. So that's kind of my arc that I'm watching for these. Like Sinister Sinister Six is, to me... Yeah, interesting, but not the most, not the thing that I'm going in there for. I would say I think that yeah, the, the fact that they had such a good relationship and that they were in such a good place in their relationship first, I think, did make this much more mm-hmm. impactful than it otherwise would have been. Um, and I think it, it isn't quite as egregious as many of the killing the girlfriend yeah. uh, scenes we've seen in superhero movies and and indeed every single freaking action movie ever because. You know, it does establish her as a character in her own right who has her own thing going on, who absolutely, you know, does what she believes to be the right thing and not what Spidey wants for her and doesn't stand there shrieking but actually tries to be useful, um, which I thought was nice. They did nevertheless kill the girlfriend, which I don't love, but um, given that she was Gwen Stacy, they've clearly been plan- planning that well, for quite some time. This is an interesting one. I mean, you know, I guess they have the uh, the weight of history when yeah. it comes to Gwen Stacy. I'm going to throw something out there for us to discuss. Did they need to kill her at all? Uh, for example, if you look at Marvel Studios movies, they're not beholden to comic book lore. Mm-hmm. Uh, they very purposefully stayed away from the Tony Stark as an alcoholic um, arc, which is such a huge part of that character's history in the comic book. Uh, and they've, they've made a lot of changes from the comic books that, that fit the movies. Now, 
Could they have done that with Gwen Stacy? Should they have done with Gwen Stacy? We, I guess we didn't really have the time to discuss it with uh, uh, Arad and Matt no. Tomac, but uh, it, I'd love to talk to them and say whether that was ever discussed at any point. Just keep her alive, because they don't... Just because a character dies in the source material sure. doesn't mean they have to mm-hmm. die in the adaptation. I, th- I think they're going to regret it a little bit, possibly, because with the best will in the world, I cannot see any actress out there ha- bringing quite as much sparkle to to a relationship with with Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker as she did. Um, I feel like they had like I was watching it for the scenes with the two of them for the last two movies. That's been what what I think a lot of people went to The Amazing Spider-Man 4 and I, I worry that they've lost an awful lot when they lost her. Yeah, I think it's a real shame that Shailene Woodley won't be coming back because I think it's one of the few people, like because she's so innately charming, which in a very different way to how Emma Stone is, yeah. I think, I think it could have worked really well with her. But I agree with you, I can't see many others who would have the same effect that they've had. Whether they needed... To, I, don't, I, I actually think, no, they didn't need to kill her. They could have sent her to England and there would have been to a large extent the same impact he would have lost her you know she's gone from his life um but i i mean i would think if you are the producers of that and you want to keep things fresh well i mean where where else would you go with their relationship do you always want gwen in the background if they're bringing in yeah. someone new i guess and they they want a talking point as well don't they i guess they do obviously in a comic book you know gwen's death has uh uh, cast a large shadow on Peter Parker's life for a long, long time. But comic books are also uh, largely ephemeral things. You know, someone can die one month, and uh, the next month it's all happy-go-lucky again. And it's a harder transitional tonal shift to mm-hmm. make in a movie and in a franchise uh, for someone a major character to die like this, um, uh, and then to suddenly have a character who is by his very definition quite a light bouncy character Spider-Man himself not Peter Parker necessarily but Spider-Man's quite bouncy and light and fun and quippy and uh, you know it's going to be a a, a tough one to recover from they did a decent job of doing it in the movie there's a five month gap between Gwen's death and the and the the epilogue with the rhino and the sense and the little kid the little kid is is a nice little moment Mm -hmm. there because what else is kind of going to get him back into the fray? What else at that point can cut through the grief? It's that sort of innocent mm. defiance and, and, yeah. But I also I also think, and this is something that, that has uh, been present in all the Spider-Man movies, uh, including the Sam Raimi ones, is that uh, Sam Raimi uh, often treats his protagonists as misery receptacles, just to, he likes just making them as miserable as they possibly can, throwing everything at them. And that's great, After, but after a fashion, it just becomes a little wearying. And I felt that, you know, I don't necessarily always want to see Peter Parker miserable. I, you know, I, yeah. I, I like Andrew Garfield as Peter Parker. I like, I, you know, he's already full of angst about his 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 parents. He's full of angst about Uncle Ben. He's full of angst about his hair. He, and now he's full <laughs> he of has no about... cause for angst about his hair. Come on, it's all gone now. We shaved it all off. I know. <laughs> he looks like a Russian gangster. It's going to be a, a challenge, I guess, to. Uh, to fold in Mary Jane to the story. I think Russian gangsters look like Paul Giamatti in a big rhino suit. <laughs> Do you think? Do you, don't you think? I mean, that's how I imagine it. <laughs> Talking about what Helen mentioned earlier about setting up Gwen Stacy as something more than just a girlfriend. She is clever. She's the brightest in her class. She's a valedictorian. She's constantly pointing out the semi-obvious to him. And I love how she was like, I'm breaking up with you, all of that stuff. Mm. But when it comes down to her helping in that big electrical... Thingy. Thingy, you know, the, the small... <laughs> I have no word for it. it that, I'm sure there is a word for it. I don't have the word for it. But the area where they have the big fight. The end of the power plant. Is, yeah. Yeah. is that a power plant? I feel like it's... Uh, I don't know, but there was electricity. Power. It. it was a power plant. She power goes, plants. Yeah. I need to be here. I need to help you out because I know where the thing is to do the thing. 
when she actually goes into the area, she goes up the stairs, she goes to the main foyer, there is a man who's dead with his hand outstretched with the key she needs. She takes the key, there is a giant big box, which essentially says, put key in here. She sticks the key in and then uh, she does it. Yeah, she pr- literally pressed to press a button. They, they could have maybe just had her at least adjust a few knobs. Yeah. There. We were. I beg your pardon. Is- Read a diagram, you know, look at something else. Anyway, I did also think, Peter, you are so good at protecting people and making sure people... I know this is part of the development. He has learnt to let her be more of herself and stop trying to kind of coddle her. But if you're in this power plant, for lack of a better phrase, and there is Electro, maybe, maybe just tell her this time, be the dick and say, go home. I'm so sorry. But that's the point. I know. She that's... says he tries to tell her. He says, don't be here. You can't be here. And yeah. she says, this is my choice. This I mean, that's choice. the whole, yeah. that's I, her whole yeah. thing. I'm, I'm just I've saying, chosen would... to be here. You haven't killed. Yeah. At the end, <laughs> he hasn't killed her. She wanted she to be there. The she could have. She, she could have survived. Yeah. Which is interesting because um, it's, you know, it, it, someone tweeted this, Helen, uh, trying to tiptoe around the spoiler issue. But they said basically, what did you think of? Because you you tended to espouse the podcast before about uh, damsels in distress, yeah. And they, what do you think about Gwen being a damsel in distress in the, in this movie? Uh, it's interesting because she's the one who says it's my choice, but you yeah. can also say that it's just a, a, a glib line mm. put in there. To that did feel a little bit like it was a glib line in, in to, to absolve Peter. Yes, mm. it, it, I mean, and I I like it from a character point of view. Actually, I do think it's a good line, but at the same time, it was a good line in the same old same old situation. Which is that you know the the bad guy goes for the girlfriend as a means to getting to the hero, and it's just just shoot the hero for once, like <laughs> seriously, people, you know. Um, he did try to be fair. Well, he just that's missed. true. That's true. He kept missing him and hitting her. But I, yeah, it it did feel you know I I just. I have a problem with the trope as a whole. This is not the most egregious example of the killing of the girlfriend or indeed the threatening of the girlfriend or the kidnapping of the girlfriend or all the other things that happened to the girlfriend. Um, This was not a badly done one. I just have an issue with the fact that we're still defaulting to this an awful lot. As we're talking about uh, Gwen Stacy, and she is, I think, the the focus point of a lot of the film, it's notable that we haven't talked about the, um, the enemies yet. Let's talk about the Oxford Scholar Programme. (laughs) <laughs> because I love how there is a small Oxford college in the middle of New York that's fine and all the flags are up that's great they did actually have you know real colleges mentioned it wasn't mm. just Oxbridge Academy like in Batman and Robin yeah. so some marks for having you know Somerville College Oxford and that kind of thing sure mentioned. and you don't see anyone's nipples underneath their suits yeah. which is also a bonus but I did find the whole like plummy on the phone oh, I know. it's Oxford hello yeah. Oxford here who wants to come join us hello and there's a lady who's at the sitting behind the desk hello it's me well wait about 20 minutes <laughs> you have your chat it's obviously dramatic and I just felt there was an irony of this English guy doing a good American accent anyway I just found it quite funny it is a it is a genuinely annoying thing to me that any time that especially children's movies American children's movies if people come to the UK or have any contact with people from England they inevitably meet incredibly posh people from England always it's especially true in children's movies how good would it have been if it had actually been you know like a, a person with a northern accent doing admissions for Oxford no one would understand them oh my god Anyway, You're yeah. Oxford, then. <laughs> uh, a up, Chuck. Get I back. Get into the uh, interview zone. <laughs> you read clever, lass. Read clever. Right. Um, I should probably drop the accent. Uh, yeah. Right. Next question uh, is from Luke from Dudley. Well done, Luke from Dudley. Could you help me out, he says, and explain exactly what powers Electro was supposed to have? <laughs> Obviously, he was imbued with the power of electricity. 
but according to the film's logic, this allowed him to fly, levitate objects, and play piano in the style of Ray Charles. I think <laughs> my understanding was there were implications of electromagnets are a thing, and that repels things against each other. So I think there's a lot of positive and negative ions reacting against each other to make him fly. Amazing. And that, and that kind of stuff. You're in Oxford, well done. Sutherland <laughs> College accepts you. It's like having Professor Brian Cox on the podcast. It's astonishing. Wow. It was so whatever suited, whatever seems electrical, whatever seems all-powerful. I quite like that there is a villain here who is just incredibly powerful. Like, when you actually get to the power plant, I did, for all that I've been saying earlier about being, oh, this is a bit kiddie, hmm. It's a bit silly. Oh, his trousers have fallen down. Boing. Whip, whip, whip out the guns. Um, all that stuff. I was like, wow, this is. I'm actually quite nervous. As Helen said, you know, after the bridge, I was like, oh, God, there's, something's going to happen here, and I don't think I'm going to like it. Then he says the sparkles gag, which drove me up the wall. Oh, a god called sparkles. Anyway, but Electro Guy, I was actually great. I actually am scared of this character. He could do anything mm. apart from shoot him face on for some reason. <laughs> He can appear anywhere, right? So Electro can appear anywhere. He can kind of transmogrify into nothing and reappear. Yeah. He can phase in and out. Why doesn't he phase his fist inside his skull? I don't know. Then, I don't... The, yeah. the old why didn't anyone... Why didn't they do that? It's a movie. The movie wouldn't have been <laughs> as fun if yeah. they had done the thing that would kill them straight away. Do you want to explain... always the answer. I do you want to explain... A 20-minute movie. <laughs> yeah. But, do you want to explain to the millions of crying kids in foyers of cinemas <laughs> as, as Spider-Man's brain becomes like mulch? <laughs> Do you want to explain to them what happened? Scientifically, I'd probably get Ollie in. I was very <laughs> slightly disappointed. I think there should have been more eel powers, given how he got his... You know, Spider-Man got spider powers. I would have liked some eel powers. So, so what, what, what were those? Swimming, don't right. know. Uh-huh. Yeah. Making, being, making very prolific albums. Being eaten by people at the beach in olden times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Be- being right. jellied to be Jelly, cooked yeah. very delicately. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. I'm, I'm so much clearer on the eel <laughs> powers um, now. He was able to do... He was, a, he was effectively a god, and yeah. he was able to do loads and loads of godlike things except kill the main hero, and he was able to somehow conjure up a nice pair of pants to cover up his, his electro-modesty, yeah. which I thought was very, very nice. Can I just mention the Dr. Manhattan in the room? Um, Electro, the big swinging way. blue dick in the room. <laughs> yes. I mean, he looked a lot like him, and especially when they had the shot of him him recon- reconstituting himself mm. yes. after after splitting into his constituent uh, atoms. <laughs> it, that was pure Dr. Manhattan, I thought. Was, and, yeah. and I, you know, that was perhaps a little bit of a, of a, a risky route to go given that it's it's quite an iconic moment i'm thinking more even in the comic panel than than the movie to have someone who is blue and bald looks like dr manhattan essentially just reconstituting himself that way so yeah. i know that his look came from later comic books so they didn't want to go with the you know yellow leotard <laughs> and spiky hat thing but in the comics can he i can't remember can he fly and do reconstituting as we called it from what I read up about Electro because as soon as he was announced I was like okay so what can this guy actually do I hope he isn't just you know Revenge of the Sith zap 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 because that would be quite frustrating and a bit lame and what I discovered is that he can go into currents like into electricity sockets and appear elsewhere which I quite liked as an idea he's limited by the electricity of a city which is why Mm -hmm. he's great to be in a city it's quite great to get him to this power plant again I'm sorry for not knowing what the term is that really worked for me and them <laughs> leaping around in that power plant was great because I saw yes he's zapping from these places mm. but if he's just appearing in the sky 
and he's flying everywhere, I felt a little bit... Look, like you said, it's a comic book movie. <laughs> Why am I bringing logic to mm. a fancy pants man in a pyjama suit party? I know, but I do like a little bit of grounded reality, grounded electricity. Anybody? Oh, very good. In the uh, in the comics, I grew up reading Electro in the comics, and I, as I said to Mato Makanaviarad, it was a surprise to me that Electro wasn't as powerful as he should be, given that he can control electricity. And there's, there was a nice little callback, I think, to James Cameron's uh, scriptment in the film, in the idea that he uh, killed Con Fiore's character and then brought him back to life again. Because uh, in the James Cameron scriptment for Spider-Man, that's what... Electro, who was one of the, the two main villains, did. He would kill his henchmen because he was a prick and then just bring them back to life again and go, ah, I have the power of life and death over you, ha, ha, ha. And also, I imagine he gets uh, a huge savings on electricity bills as well, which, which <laughs> helps. Um, but yeah, I, I, I wasn't entirely sold on Electro, either pre- or post-transformation. I thought uh, there's, a, there's a almost a desperate air to make all the Spider-Man villains tragic anti-heroes in some sort of way and they, I don't think they need to do and I, I just wanted to kind of hug Jamie Foxx's yeah. character before he transformed he was clearly mentally ill I think he was too damaged and too traumatised and, and too pathetic before his transformation to the extent that you really you really felt from at that point but you couldn't make the leap with him it didn't add up to him then being you know a, a truly tragic villain because he went so bad so mm-hmm. fast uh, from that point of, of absolutely needing a hug. It, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I was thinking about this. Spider-Man has probably one of the best um, rogues galleries. Mm-hmm. He probably has the best rogues gallery in Marvel, to be perfectly honest. They are quite difficult because a lot of them, a lot of the best ones especially, have essentially the same origin stories, uh, which are, you know, engineering gone wrong yeah. kind of stories. I mean, Electro, I guess, at, at least in that way, is a slightly different. But yeah, I, I don't know. He's He's just, it was a bit of a, it was a, a bit of an uneven kind of a villain story for me. He reminded yeah. me a bit of Mr. Freeze sometimes, <clears throat> the patter between them and we talk about the a lot of critis- a lot of people criticizing this film have been talking about the tone jumping around. We've already discussed the beginning of the film mm-hmm. compared to the end of the film, but I think also it's within the bits that are a bit darker, there will be repartee or kind of visual jokes that punctuate it, which I don't feel quite worked out and I think some of their banter um, which obviously evolves from a very tense scene, which I actually really liked in Times Square, mm. where you see this man, before he becomes I am bad guy, bow before me. That is his scene, and that's obviously the reason I, I imagine why Jamie Foxx wants to be part of the film. Because you see this guy become this X-Factor fame-obsessed person, and seeing himself on the screen and getting envious, I thought, this is a really interesting idea. You're talking about fame. And this, not just in terms of, oh... Heavy hangs the head that wears the crown. I have all these powers. It's do I want to do this because I want to be on the big screen? Is that all I've ever wanted? I wish they'd gone further on that. I mm. wish there was more discussion of the fame of it all. I think mm. you're right. I think that's something that did get lost along along the way because that was a really interesting thing. It was no one's ever no one's ever paid any attention to me. Now everyone is paying attention to me, and it did sort of, it leached into this thing more of egomania or what? it was yeah it was just it became unless i'm remembering the end incorrectly it became more about just wanting power yeah, yeah. and wanting to destroy other people and it shouldn't be that it should be now you'll pay attention yeah. to me i'm taking these planes down yeah you know, it's actually a really dark thought now i think about it mm. these planes crash together i will be remembered forever aside from the fact i look like you know a blue god but that would have been interesting but yeah, yeah. it just turns into me powerful you weak smash yeah. smash yeah, it's a bit of a shame. He does. He, he does become very one-dimensional uh, towards the end. Um, is he dead at the end? Do you think? No. No. Probably not. I mean, I kind. I 
to be honest, I really, I, I, in that um, Times Square scene, I, re- I thought that I, which I thought was great, except mm. for that horrible uh, chanting they had on the soundtrack, yeah. which was just awful, and they <laughs> should never do that again. But I thought he was great in that sequence, and like Ali says, he was genuinely scary. But then as he tailed off, and it became more about the Green Goblin. By the end, you know, once they'd popped him and he'd gone, I didn't feel like I wanted some tease of him coming back. I just thought like he was done, bring in some other villains. But I think, I mean, given that we know there's a Sinister Six film coming, I think we can categorically rule out the possibility of him being dead. Not categorically, maybe, but largely. But they go, well, maybe we should move on to who we think is going to be in the the Sinister Six, because I think it's still... I would uh, guess the Green Goblin would be involved. I don't know about you. I reckon. Well, I think you were onto something. Traditionally, <laughs> traditionally, the Sinister Six, as formed by Doctor Octopus, comprises Doc Ock, Electro, Sandman, Mysterio, the Vulture, and Craven the Hunter, who is the most ridiculous yeah. of all the Spider-Man's rogues gallery. Uh, and uh, good luck if you're trying to incorporate him into the film. He's a, basically a slightly camp wrestling man, control <laughs> tigers. So <laughs> that's essentially what it's it is. True. Um, uh, so I don't know whether they're going to go down that route. I imagine the Green Goblin will be involved in the Sinister Six uh, at some point, as you heard with uh, Matt uh, Tomac and Abby Arad. Um, I don't think we've seen the last of Chris Cooper as Norman Osborn. I don't think they signed up an Oscar-winning actor to just come in, cough a bit and cark it. Uh, I think he's going to do something. Uh, he's going to pop back up again and uh, he could lead the, the new Sinister Six. Who knows? Since we are talking, this is obviously a spoiler special, There's there have been rumours online of a deleted end credit scene which actually didn't go out with the film because we had that mystique thing from X-Men instead which we will speak no further of <laughs> but the the rumoured del- scene that actually was going to close the film instead was did involve the gentleman visiting Norman Osborn's <laughs> the gentleman's severed- the best neighbour Phil in there <laughs> well it worked in Buffy I am the uh, gentleman he was basically visiting Norman Osborn's severed head. The, the head then opened its eyes, and if if it didn't say anything, it certainly indicated agreement of, in some way. So uh, his head is a, is around. Is it he could be fish, put on a, like a, a fish tank robot like, body or something. Who knows? Like Futurama, or was it like a fish tank <laughs> like The Walking Dead? I'm hoping for a fish tank like that goldfish with a with a robot bo- with a, a gorilla From body Megamind. in Megamind. Yeah. yeah. Um, but wow. anyway, so he could be back. I, I would say one thing about Harry Osborn's Green Goblin, though. Uh-huh. I'm not 100 percent sure that they'll put him in Sinister Six. It depends a little bit on what order these films come in. We don't know. There's they're planning Sinister Six, Amazing Spider-Man three, and Venom. I think they might hold him for Amazing Spider-Man 3 mm-hmm. because he now has a very personal fight with Peter Parker. And I don't know I don't know what they're planning for Sinister 6. If it is a story of redemption, yeah. then that might be a, that might put his story in conflict with the Sinister 6 and and therefore they might hold off on him. But it depends on what order entirely that Indeed. these films come out in. Well, I think the end of the movie makes it clear that he's, he's stuck there in Arkham. Uh, he's stuck there in the, uh, the place <laughs> that's clearly not Arkham. And, uh, you know, he's clearly involved. He's instrumental in getting the Sinister Six together. So I would say that he will be involved at some point. But honestly, you know, and I know it's not up to us, but if it were up to me, the Sinister Six movie would be a recruitment movie. It would be a, a fun... Magnificent Seven style, Dirty Dozen style thing, but Harry Osborn recruiting the Sinister Six, auditioning some shit super villains, and getting some good ones as well, and forcing it, and then they go on a mission together, and then they're ready to fight Spider Man in the next movie. That's what I would do with that. If, but it's not up to me, is I, it Hollywood? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the thing is, do you then have a film completely without a hero? Well, they're going to have to. 
Are they? Because there are rumours of Black Cat facing uh, Sinister Six. Oh, really? Because I was, I was wondering if now I'm wading into comic book areas that I really have no business wading into. Um, but I was wondering whether they would make her part of the Sinister Six because she is kind of hero slash villain, isn't she? She's just... She's she's Catwoman essentially. Yes. Well, um, although she predates Catwoman apparently fine, in some respects. Whatever, so. I'm not starting any lawsuits here. <laughs> but I thought maybe they'll bring her in cuz they've clearly set up Felicity Jones. I'm assuming is that character. She is that character. Yeah. Yes. Uh yeah, it's it's going to be interesting in the comic book she's striking white-haired uh, cat burglar who um is is very sexy. Uh, in this one, we, we know um, from the 847 trailers that accompany this movie that there is a, a shot of Felicia Hardy uh, standing in front of Harry Osborne as he's on the glider in one of the trailers, which didn't make the movie. A lot of stuff in the trailers that didn't make the movie of this one. Mm. So I imagine, I imagine she'll be in it at some point. I don't... I, honestly... We've been talking an awful lot about this, about the idea of this. Can the Spider-Man universe, can they sustain movies without Spider-Man in it? I'm not entirely sure they can, but if they were to go down a route of having a Sinister Six movie with, without a, a hero for them to take on, mm. I'd actually quite like to see a movie entirely from the bad guy's point of view. That would mm-hmm. be quite fun. It would be very interesting and, and very experimental and very daring, and I would like to see it too. I'm just not sure that we will. Drew Goddard seems to be the, the man with a plan. Like He's the guy who brought us Kevin in the Woods, so I feel like he can do it different take on a genre so I would like if they could possibly resurrect him the Dr. Kafka I think his name was but the <laughs> Uber Camp what's the name of that uh, that musical Dr. Horrible Sing-Along Blog it yes. remi- reminds me of that area of ridiculousness talking about are we actually scared of Electro yes we are I believe that he's a god he's strapped down in this bath or liquid where he's being zapped and electrified and stabbed and who the hell are you <laughs> how did you rise to such a position of prominence at this, <laughs> at this really creepy asylum doctor <laughs> I was so glad he died That was it was at that point I thought please say this guy's not going to become Dr. Octopus please please oh, please, please 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 yeah uh, that was Martin Sokas it was it's yeah. awful awful in this film absolutely yes. awful making a, a on loan from Batman and Robin I think yeah. the character it was uh, quite a strange quite a strange one a little bit out, tonally out of place you would, yeah. you would yeah. argue I'm sorry we ran out of time to talk to Mark Webb about him because he was on my list of things to ask and I didn't quite get there we haven't talked really about the rhino I mean if you're talking about you know hiring great actors for, for one scene uh, he would seem to be a setup for a Sinister Six role as well, now, wouldn't he? Yeah, I mean, Paul Giamatti uh, got this role in much the same way Sam Jackson got the role of Mace Windu in, in Star Wars. He basically went on a talk show and went, I love the rhino, and I would like to play the rhino. And they went, OK, well, we'll <laughs> fine, we'll write a part for you. And uh, he's fun in the movie. Um, uh, I'd be quite happy to see him back. Is this maybe in a slightly different suit. I would say, but you know, still. I'm, I'm sorry to keep bringing reality checks, but on the oh come on, on the whole different suit, you obviously agree with me. I like the idea of him being kind of this, you know, lugging, hulking bodysuit with rockets and whatever. Yeah, totally down with that. I can totally see an evil corporation creating this sort of Transformers esque super suit mm. for it to turn into a quadruped nose based ramming thing, essentially a rhino. Seems a bit weird. Is that just because it's called the Rhino? Why is it? 
on all fours. Why don't you take our rocking launcher? I was kind of worried about what happened to his legs. Like, yeah. would that not be really uncomfortable for any extended period of time? Mm-hmm. I may be overthinking this. Let's I imagine, move on. <laughs> I imagine they've gone through an awful lot of, uh, of research and development in the evil part of Oscorp Tower. Uh, you know, <laughs> what's that E button for on the elevator? <laughs> oh, by the way, I love the. Uh, did anyone else love the elevator of exposition? Yeah. Yes. At Oscorp, where everyone who needed to meet everyone got into the elevator at, at one time or another. Hello, Gwen Stacy. How are you? I am Maxwell Dillon. Oh, that's very nice. Well, well see you later. Okay. Uh, who are you? I'm Harry Osborne. You know, it just seemed everyone just needed to get in that elevator at but, some point. But near that elevator, you <laughs> get the awesome. stuff that we've talked about in the non-supporter sections in the interviews previously and previous issues of the Empire podcast. You get that great Buster Keaton goofing physical comedy stuff, yeah. which I really liked. And the more I think about it, the more I wish more films had them in. And they said that it took 17, 18 takes and it, it didn't show, but I can believe it in retrospect and I really enjoyed that. With the bit yeah. where Peter is tripping people up. With the mugs and the coffee cups. and uh, Who else thought, Chris Cooper, great actor, who else thought when you see him in his deathbed, deathbed, uh, green-faced, mm-hmm. that he might just utter out as he died, maniacal laugh. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been the crossover we've all been waiting for. <laughs> Suddenly it ain't easy being green and then you see Kermit on this on the, on the glider throwing small bombs. Be amazing. So he's not Norman Osborne at all, he's Tex Richmond. Yes. That's astonishing. Uh, speaking of the uh, elevator exposition, it reminded me of something else there. You know when uh, Harry was opening up all the files? Mm. Have you seen all the various um, freeze frames people have done of it? No. Where it reveals lots of people like... The Doctor, whose name I absolutely can't remember because I've never read any comics with him, <laughs> but who becomes Morpheus, the vampire guy? Morbius. Morbius, that's the one, not Morpheus. He's yes. he's the Matrix. He should come in as one of the Sinister Six. That would be good. His name is one of the, the files, so he is now within the universe. So another Sinister Six option. Wow. That's Doctor Michael Morbius. As I said. Yeah. Yes. Morpheus. Was there a character called A113 anyway? That's the fun you can have with stuff like that. You know, just you know, it's it's nice and plenty though, the little Easter eggs and hidden things for you to spot on a on a second or third viewing. And for example, you know, I didn't spot it this time, but we saw it in the trailer at the at the end when when Harry goes down to the evil lab of evilness, uh, and uh, you know, so you see, I think Doc Ock's tentacles. You, you see, see yeah. the Vulture's flying suit. Yeah. Um, I was a little bit concerned about how Harry instantly knew how to control the Goblin Glider. Yeah, that thing must come with instructions. It must be quite difficult. Maybe there's some kind of cybernetic hookup to mm. your brain. Yeah. She said, overthinking it. What do you think, Professor Brian Cox? <laughs> <laughs> that can be done. Um, <laughs> there was one, one thing I did find slightly annoying at the end was when he turned back to uh, looking more normal. Uh-huh. And there's a thing of oh, that, God, you're looking much better. He's like, it comes and goes. Like, oh, piss off. <laughs> if you're going to have him looking like, you know, some green crack addict, just stick with it. Don't yeah. pretend that he can go back to just looking like he does normally. I just want to say another thing that's apparently downstairs in the basement of Oscorp is a little puddle of black goo. Ooh. Yar. And a red room of pain. Well, oh, well, now that's a crossover for people would pay to see. <laughs> <laughs> Some people, a certain small group of people. Yeah, wow. ni- it would be niche. Do we have another question? We have many questions, actually, and there's lots of other stuff I want to talk about. Uh, way more than I actually thought I would, but anyway. Yeah. Um, all right, so this is a couple of questions from Lucian War Daily, who says, uh, Do you agree that Stan Lee's uh, TASM2 cameo was one of his least inventive, unexpected, and unique ever? And then he asks, What's your all-time favourite Stan Lee cameo? I think I know that guy. I hate all Stanley cameos <gasps> in these films. You hate Joy. I don't hate Stanley. I just wish they wouldn't put him in these films. He's brilliant in the first Amazing Spider-Man. 
I, I, he shouldn't the be head, there with, it's, with the headphones on and him going around the library with a lizard and that's the best bit of see during the film and he's listening to the classical music no know? it's just suddenly hey guys it's a movie stop you know stop feeling like you're in this now we're going to stop it and put that old guy in again Wait, we'd already seen a man have his trousers removed reveal bloomers with red and white stripes and spots on them I think you know you could sneak in Stan Lee the minute they put the uh, Spider-Man theme tune yeah. onto Peter Parker's ring as Peter Parker's ringtone that broke the fourth wall a little bit that was a little bit of a little bit meta it's fine to have Stan Lee in it also if you think he's playing the same character from Amazing Spider-Man 1 then that's fine it could be the first time. I'm gonna. That's what I'm. I'm sticking to that. I think it's the same character. He's the janitor at the school. It makes sense that he a would librarian be librarian or something. Janitor, librarian, whatever he is. Because he's the janitor at the Smithsonian. Okay, so he's a, okay. He's a librarian at he's the a school. He's a furious janitor in the Smithsonian, isn't he? Midtown high school, and then and when they're like graduating, yeah, it makes perfect sense that he would be there, and he would know that guy because he's seen him. I, I will agree. It's not my favorite of his, but I wouldn't say it's the absolute. Worst, I don't know. I like I like the one uh, in Iron Man where he's mistaken for um, for Hugh Hefner. That's funny. That's I like good. the Winter Soldier that I just mentioned. I like the first Hulk where he's hanging out with Lou Ferrigno, just because he's hanging out with Lou Ferrigno, not because it's amazingly inventive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like. I, I, probably my favorite is actually the uh, the Amazing Spider-Man, the first one. Because I think it's a really funny gag. X-Men 2 is fun when he's serving hot dogs on the beach. No, X-Men 1 is serving hot dogs on the yeah. beach. I think the weakest might be, now I think about it, not that it's bad necessarily, is in Thor when he's driving that pickup truck oh, and yeah. he's trying to pull out the hammer. It's fine, but it's just, oh, there he is, move on. He's yeah. fantastic in Thor The Dark World as one of the crazy loons in the um Can I have my asylum. shoe back? Yeah. That's good. Anyway. I didn't think it was too, I didn't think it was too bad. I thought it was, I thought it was absolutely fine. Uh... Uh, Colin Broadhead or Colin Broadhead asks do you think the last 15 minutes could have been rejigged could have had an Empire Strikes Back ending and the Ravenholm stuff not Arkham uh, could have been post credits not that I disliked the ending but it would have been an interesting tonal shift we, I guess we've talked about this a little yeah. bit but do you think that they put too many eggs in one basket uh, fill-in wise for example uh, during this movie they had two bad guys three if you count the Rhino an awful lot of stuff happened in the last half hour. Could mm. they have set some of that stuff up for Amazing? I've seen, I've seen some criticisms of this film, for example, saying it's basically just 140 minutes of setup for Amazing Spider-Man Three. Mm. I don't entirely agree with that, but I can see where they're coming from. I don't mm. like how the poster's tagline did read with Rhino on the left, Green Goblin in the sky, and on the TV screens, Electro, enemies unite. Not really. Like two of them for a little brief period of time. Mm. The Rhino's not part of this gang. Well, he is at the end. No, he's a he's a bookend though. He's, he's not. Re- but he's recruited. No, they're going to ask him. He might say no. He might have other things on. Yeah, you're busy next week, right? Yeah. Now. Like, well, I got to I got to do laundry. I kill you, spider. <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't think the. I don't think the movie was completely just setting up part three. I think the marketing was, which I think that's. I think that's been a mistake. That every there's been so much talk from Sony. Saying, "Oh, Sinister Six is coming, or oh, the next one's this." It's, uh, d- focus on this one. You're you're selling me Spider-Man Three. I want you to be selling me Spider-Man Two. Telling me why I need to go and see this, not telling me that I'm seeing the the prologue to your next movie. Um, I don't think it felt crowded with villains. I think it could very easily have, but I don't think it did. I think each of them had a clear reason for why they existed. Sure, Rhinos was just I'm angry in Russian, but I think. You knew you knew why they were all becoming villains. Even as we said, Electro's became a bit muddy. You could see why he became a bad guy. 
uh, Green Goblin again was very clear. I thought those arcs were all well done, which whereas you didn't get in, you know, Batman Robin the absolute nadir yeah. of or or indeed in or Spider-Man, Spider-Man Man 3. 3. You didn't you lost a sense of why anyone was really doing what they were doing or whether they were teaming up or, or what. But I thought this this was clear. I actually kind of agree with you. It is a pet hate of mine to have too many villains in a movie. It genuinely nothing will You'll get love me the angrier. Six, then. Yeah, nothing will get me angrier or faster. But I do think that in terms of the way they were balanced, it wasn't disastrous. I have issues with some of how the villains were done. I mean, we've talked about Electra already, but but in terms of the way that they were kind of balanced out and the roles that they played in the story, it was actually a pretty good example of how to do it. I mean, the Rhino literally just beginning and end I mean because you could have had an you know a random ro- armed robber at the beginning that would have been a, a typical opening for a sort of a spider movie but then to have him come back at the end maybe worked better than just having a random armed robber would have done you know so so I think that kind of made sense Electro made sense but given that he was you know ultimately a little bit tragic or he should have been ultimately a little bit tragic if you'd only had him then you wouldn't have had you, you would have been really conflicted at the end because you would have been torn between, you know, trying to get through to him and save him in some way um, and also obviously try to stop him from doing any damage. And I think it, it helped to have somebody completely off the wall at that point, maybe. You know who the biggest villain is of the film? Like, the, the biggest. Like, the guy who actually left the film and went, you are an absolute asshole." is BJ Novak as, <laughs> as Paul Max's boss. I mean, yeah. he's just an absolute dick. Not only is his birthday, you're just treating him like a total peon, like a real drone. And this guy's a genius. It's created, apparently, the network that all, all of Electricity New York's based on. Like, give him a bonus, buy him a cake, you know, pat him on the shoulder. And then the guy's on the radio when he's singing happy birthday to himself. Of course, they had to pay for the rights for that. Hey, can you help me? Because, you know, this this thing's gone horribly wrong. And can you just, please, you know, can you come help me? Uh, no, I'm leaving. Mm. Screw you! Well, he, he does turn out to be a bad guy. In the in the comic books, he's a, he's a bad guy, ultimately called the Spider Slayer. But, Alistair uh, something? Alistair Smythe. Uh, whether they bring him into the... Uh, the larger story he could be a candidate for Sinister Sixdom mm. who knows but um, one thing I want to talk about uh, it's a very very key relationship we talked about Gwen and Peter um, we haven't talked about Aunt May and Peter uh, and the whole uh, concept of Peter's parents we'll get on to that in a second is Harry Osborne and uh, Peter Parker uh, this relationship was I guess one of the fulcrums of the Raimi trilogy what did we make of it this time around and did we buy uh, Harry's descent into villainy I again I'm, I'm kind of giving this one a little bit of a pass. I thought it was fairly well done um, in the limited space allotted to it um, because they really had, a, they had one scene of them being good friends reunited after 10 years apart or something and then went straight into a deteriorating relationship as, as Harry put pressure on Peter. I mean, you can understand why if somebody's suffering this dread disease, why they might become a little bit unreasonable if a friend suddenly was like, oh no, I'm not going to help you from their point of view at least. So it wasn't terribly badly done, but it was a little bit rushed, I thought. I was a bit confused because we'd seen in a trailer a sequence where Harry goes using his finger magic minority report on the desk material and just presses the button and stretches it out and it shows. He says, you've been watched all this time by Oscorp, Peter. Why do you think that is? Why do you think they're interested in you? Well, isn't that the question of the day? <laughs> when enemies unite. Uh, so that kind of bamboozled me because I saw that in the trailer and went, oh, well, obviously he'll work out, obviously, because he knows his friend well enough, even after the brief stone-skimming 
area um, that they, he they should have held hands. They should have bit. Yeah, I, think I had so. some ice cream. Skipped around. A I bit. think it should have been like the Notebook, but they didn't. They didn't. He didn't seem to recognise his voice when he came in. I suppose it was a bit muffled by the suit. But when he comes in through the window, they talk about the blood. And and his um, his his stance uh, in that scene was very Peter Parker. And not Spider-Man, like just his body language was very, very Peter Parker, which I'm assuming was a deliberate decision to show that it's Peter under there who's really conflicted. But I, I agree with you. I mean, that would seem that more than even the voice kind of stood out to me as, dude, that's your mate. He's just wearing a mask. Can I just say the whole Peter's parents conspiracy McGubbins is my least favourite thing about this entire reboot. I think you just invented a new word in McGubbins. <laughs> well, yeah. A rubbish it's, MacGuffin. It's yeah. like a MacGuffin, yeah. but really, really annoying. It's when a MacGuffin is Gubbins. Um, it just... It, I, I, I buy a guy being bitten by a radioactive spider. Perhaps this says something about me as a person, but I'm okay no, with that. No, no, no. I'm on board. Professor? So, what? Radioactive spiders. Yeah, real, they exist. Real thing, happen, yeah. you can, that will happen. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, okay. so you see, okay. so I buy that. But what, it's, the, it's the layering of the coincidences that I don't buy. So the, 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 the not radioactive, but now genetically altered spider yeah. happens to bite the son of the guy who invented it. Yes. Who has, and it already has his DNA because it's got human DNA DNA in there somewhere for some reason because yes. of stuff because science of the, science, of, uh, of science I defer to yeah. Ollie on this and the, the father has disappeared because of things and stuff yes and and had to hide things in underground layers that's, in the in the the New York subway I mean that's that's a good lot of work for quite a lot of people to build that thing yeah P- you uh, know Richard Parker doesn't seem to have a lot of money no, it's he doesn't seem Parker, to have the one of the tigers that Craven the Hunter controls. Yes, yes, <laughs> that would be amazing. But you know, how much money do you to be can you be making as a scientist at Oscorp to build your own private underground lab that nobody else knows about? But, no one knows about this lab. I mean, I guess you're meant to have you know you're meant to have kind of Jimmy rigged it somehow. But like, Jimmy rigged it. I thought that was Oscorp's lab, but I thought they'd built no, it for like, him. No, they've but no idea. Surely Osborne would then, at least Osborne Senior would know it was there, and at some point in the intervening 14 years would have gone down and said, hey, let's get all the research because he destroyed the stuff in the main lab and we really, really need it. He was busy being green, and as we know, that's not easy. <laughs> Look, I'm a, I'm a sucker, as I said in the interview, nerd alert, for underground labs and also uh, public transport and that kind of secret oh, if you go down to the subway and there's a little alleyway down there, I love Skyfall for all that same shit. But my question is, if this is a secret underground station for Roosevelt and it was used by the president and the president alone, why do you have to put a coin into a slot to get through the <laughs> turnstile? Because anyway, anyone could just turn up. Anyone. He's, he's the know. bloody president and no train stops except for the president. Maybe he wants to retain an air of normality. Well, yeah. Maybe yeah, you're right. He wanted to keep it real. Like the, how, yeah. how was this stuff, all the computers and things, how are they still working? Well, it's conceivable, like, it's 2014 now, so... Yeah. And he's 18. Uh, he's 21 in this movie, isn't he? Or 20? 2014 now. And Peter's about six when his parents die. Okay? Right. In the original movie. Maybe about five or six. So let's say he's 19 in this movie. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so that's 14 years. So the film takes place in the year 2000. The opening of the film takes place in the year 2000. Now, I don't remember the internet being so fast in the year 2000 that you could upload files from a crashing plane using an ethernet cable not in, just in any seconds. computer a VIO Sony VIO now defunct Sony VIO <laughs> computer because <laughs> Sony VIOs don't exist anymore but right. on one of them yeah, Sony computer and it's a Sony computer again in the train uh huh it's because it's Sony computers. Okay. Maybe it was just a very small file. We don't, you know, it took a, it took a while. It might have been like six 
kilobytes. He's going to yeah. open up the data and it's just like four kilobytes. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> just a JPEG. My son will be Spider-Man. <laughs> How much more of the tension have been heightened in that opening scene with the planes crashing and the evil henchman who's you know trying to kill both the, the Parkers if you'd had the dial-up noise in the background? <laughs> <laughs> Great missed opportunity. Huge yeah, opportunity. It's just oh, that that whole thing. Just it, the whole f- right, father complex, as well as killing the girlfriend. Father complexes in cinema may be my most hated trope. Genuinely, get over yourselves, guys. Seriously, father complexes can naff off. And, and so that that whole thing did your daddy just irritated me. <laughs> <laughs> no, we never did. That's the problem. <laughs> and yeah, and also another coincidence that he then inve- invents. Uh, you know, uh, web slingers, the, the mechanical web slingers. That's yet another coincidence. So the, the guy who gets bitten by the spider designed by his father, unbeknownst to him, also happens to develop stuff that acts like spider web. What? Mm-hmm. Anyway. I, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. I, I, I prefer the organic web shooters. I, prefer, I do too. Yeah, I know I, it's not canon, but I do too. But at the same time, I, I know why they, they did it. They did it so they can have situations like in this movie where electro short circuits the one of the web shooters or anything, and then he has to use science, Ollie, as mm-hmm. you know, uh, to somehow counteract Electro's electro That was not powers. so much science as fingers. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I mean, Raimi find a way to get rid of the web shooters even though they were organic, so, you know, you can get around it any which way you want. I reckon Spider-Man, now I think about it, would be the most amazing yo-yo user in the world. I wouldn't bank on that not happening in the next film. <laughs> Touché. All right, so, so we look forward then briefly, I guess, to uh, Tasm 3. Or you know, Also, I think they should just start calling him the Spectacular Spider-Man. Do you think Aunt May might get a storyline? Do we also think... <laughs> Nurse <laughs> Woman. Well, she did some stuff this time. She, she some got stuff. some qualifications. She argued with him about washing in what was quite yeah. a fun scene. She had that nice scene with him, didn't she? She was going, you're my boy. You're my boy. She was, she was more significant than that woman in the Raimi ones, the yeah. actress whose name I don't know. Rosemary, Rosemary Harris. Harris. Yeah. Yeah, perfectly fine in the films, but she didn't get anything to do. So we go, oh, Peter, and then get dragged off up a building. I believe there's a hero in all of us. Yeah, nothing. She had nothing. Sally Field had loads to do in this. Yeah, film. she did much yeah, more. That's yeah, the, I, was being, I was being disingenuous. I, I apologise to, to Aunt May. Yeah, she's, she's good in this. That's a nice scene where she, you know, she breaks down and goes, you're my boy, you're my boy. That was a nice, that was a nice little scene, I thought. And there's no J. Jonah Jameson yet. There was mention of him. Mention um, of him. We I, got to see I've, emails from him. I really find it hard to imagine who's going to be better than than. Uh... <laughs> honestly, honestly, I think that might be their big problem. That might yeah. be their big problem. They haven't found anyone. Just cast J.K. Simmons. Yeah, yeah. Just, I would be surprised if they bring him back. I mean, just... seriously, yeah. I, I feel like he's the right choice. I'm, I'm sure they could get something, somebody different who would do a good job. I mean, at this rate, they'll, we can look through the years, the last few years, Oscar nominees, and he's probably in there somewhere, judging by their casting to date. But I just really like J.K. Simmons in that role. He was brilliant. Or J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling, why not? You know? I've got a better idea. It might be virtual insanity, but I would suggest just J.K. <laughs> <laughs> With a hat. That would be amazing. Uh, what else do we think might happen? Uh, do you think we'll go Sinister Six, then Spidey 3, then uh, Venom? I, My yeah. understanding is that the next one is Sinister Six, as in that the, the villains for Spider-Man 3 are the Sinister Six. That okay. it's not, they're not just waiting till the Sinister Six movie to put them in it. Okay. This is my understanding. Okay. But that yeah. doesn't work because then if they face off against Sinister Six in the third movie, then how is that any? How is there any tension whether he'll live or die? You know what? It just, it, they're not going to die anyway, so I or guess. Or it's going to be three of the Sinister Six will survive and three new members will join for the final Sinister Six in the spin-off movie. Mm. 
and there's venom mm. as well to be introduced. I, I, I honestly, you know, certainly if if he's telling the truth, Mark Webb didn't know exactly what what order they were planning to release them in. Um, he may be, you know, keeping his cards close to his chest, which would be entirely understandable. But I think that does affect what's going to happen in in Spidey Three. I, if the the logical thing for me, uh, as I've kind of alluded to before, would be it's got to be a bit of a grudge match between Green Goblin and Spider-Man. And I think it has to be a little bit of a fight for his soul, I guess, in some ways. I mean, I know that the third one is... The third one in a trilogy, in a superhero trilogy, is generally hero goes bad. Um, um, But I think... I'm not saying he, he necessarily goes bad in this, but I think he has some real kind of struggle to kind of keep his faith maybe in in the wake of, of Gwen Stacy's death. And I know we've seen him begin to kind of come back in, at the end of this, at the very end of this film, after five months of grieving, but what does he do if, if you know Harry Osborn reappears? How does that affect him? I think that could be what they go for in Amazing Spider-Man three. But again, it depends entirely on what order they do these things in. I wonder whether they'll steer away from that because that was the uh, the path of the Raimi ones. Maybe. I mean, yeah, in a sense, that's where the story is going to. But I wonder whether because they had that period at the end where he where it was mainly off screen, he was going, oh, I'm so sad, I'm so sad. And then he came back and fought the rhino. Whether they'll feel, we've done that, we've got to keep... Because their whole thing has been keeping it much, much lighter. Yeah. If they go... I really hope they don't go towards the whole, we've got to make the hero dark again. Not too dark. I mean, I think there is probably a way to do it and keep it, you know, PG-friendly, but... But yeah, I mean, you you may well be right. It might be just too depressing to do that. What they could do, as you were saying, if you want you want to see a um, a Sinister Six movie that is fun and is about bringing them together in a kind of you know X Factory. Let's do some auditions. Some of these don't work. Kind of way. <laughs> I think they could conceivably do that within Spider Man Three. So keep Harry as the as the main villain, and they're trying and while he's because I I would presume that if it goes in the order they do Spider Man Three and then the Sinister Six, mm-hmm. that the next one would be about putting it together. If they can find a way to do that so that's fun and find something to do with Peter, I don't know what you do with Peter after Gwen's gone, really, then I think it could still keep that tone that they've currently got without going really mopey and going into Spider-Man 3 territory. And we could introduce MJ, which would bring a little bit of light to proceedings as well, because she is traditionally, like, she is the go get em tiger girl. She is traditionally feisty, she's traditionally funny, mm-hmm. she's traditionally really high energy. She's perfect casting for Emma Stone which is why I was not entirely joking when I suggested to Mark Webb that they cast her as and just have you know clone long lost twin story something to explain it I don't know but you know you, you she might help kind of bring him up as well and, and kind of get things moving I've said this before in the podcast we've never seen a superhero movie where someone's fighting multiple multiple villains before I quite like to see that mm-hmm. uh, you know as a, as a part of my fan as a, as a fan of the Sinister Six I would quite like to see that happen in, in the next movie and uh, maybe stick Aunt May in there as well why not uh, and that is it for uh, this Amazing Spider-Man 2 Spoiler Special Podcast. Our regular podcast is back on Friday and our next Spoiler Special Podcast will be Gareth Edwards' Godzilla uh, with hopefully Gareth Edwards himself weighing in on that one. And that will be followed by X-Men Days of Future Past in which hopefully producer and writer Simon Kinberg will be shedding light on all the film's myriad secrets. So look out for that one in due course. Until then, it is farewell from Helen. Toodaloo. It's farewell from Ollie. Goodbye. Professor Ollie, should I say. Sorry, I got that wrong. Goodbye, scientifically. <laughs> <laughs> it's goodbye from Ali. Bye-bye. And it's goodbye from me. I'll have to change my ringtone. See you next time. Bye.